So when I was at my last church, there was this dear saint. Her name was Janie Mulder, and uh, she was raised in the Christian Reformed Church and uh, grew up in the Bible, uh, came to our church when she moved to the area. That, was, that predated me, and I got to know her and meet with her, and she was the, the saint that was always there whenever there was, if the doors were open, she was in the building. She was that sort of person. And uh, I kind of gained a reputation for taking Bible verses and maybe looking at them a little bit differently. I don't know, but I, I'll never forget the one day she came up to me, and uh, her, her daughters and I still joke about this. She came up to me and she said, one morning before church, well, pastor, what scripture are you going to ruin for us today? <laughs> and she meant it with all the love in her heart because, you know what, sometimes we've, we've seen the same scripture for so long and we've heard so many things about it that we just assume we know what it means, but we don't actually take a careful look. So full disclaimer, I may ruin one of your cherished Bible stories today. Um, so you don't have to agree with me, but we'll see how it goes. And it comes a little part ways in, so you have some time to prepare for it. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I was thankful that uh, Will gave me uh, a lot of lead time for this and time to prepare. And uh, as I was thinking about what to share with you and praying about it, I, I really felt like I should drill, drill down on this one theme that is probably the most common thing I've ever been asked as a pastor that I've ever been asked this last year at the school with the students, and that's this. How do I know what God's will is for my life? Or how do I know what God wants me to do? Has anyone else experienced that question? Yeah, maybe a few of you. So I'm going to share with you my approach to this. And I think it may, may uh, challenge what you have thought. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But I wanted to tell you, uh, before I came to Petrolia, Petrolia, Bracebridge, which was the last church I was at, I was in Petrolia, and I had this sense that my, my time of ministry there was coming to a close. I'd been there six years. Um, I was a staff pastor, and I just got the sense that God may be moving me somewhere else. And so I did what you're supposed to do, and I, I gave my resume to district, and they sent it out to different churches, and I actually got a call to a church in Hanover, and I was really excited about this. And, and I remember driving from Petrolia up to Hanover to meet with their board, and I had a long conversation with the board, and you know what? It was wonderful. It was a great experience. As I was talking to the board about, you could see their passion for the church, you could tell that they were ready for someone to, to show up and lead. You could, uh, and I got along with everyone in that meeting. It was one of those boards where, like, I had, I could connect with everyone there. Everything felt good. The church was in uh, good shape at the time. Everything from an external position looked like it was the right thing to do. So I left that church, and I went to a payphone. <laughs> there was such a thing back in the day called payphones before we had some, and I was one of the last people, I only got my cell phone last year, so I was one of the last holdouts. So I went to a payphone, I pumped it with quarters, and I called Donna, and she said, so how did it go? And I said, everything was great, but I don't know. 
And maybe you've experienced something like that, where you've had a big decision to make, and all the signs point one way, but you don't feel that certainty, you don't feel that calm, you just, you just don't know. And that was the situation I was in. I drove back to Petrolia alone in the car, praying, thinking to myself, nothing could have went better. Everything went well. But it just, I don't know how I feel. It just, I, I didn't have that sense that God was bringing me there. And that was really the first time I really developed and worked on my ability to hear from the Lord. I'll tell you the rest of that story later. But uh, I want to talk about how some of the other cultures, the Old Testament, the surrounding cultures, tried to figure out what God's will was. And then I'm going to suggest that Jesus has shown us an important way to discern God's will. Before we get there, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We're here for you. We're here to learn from you through your spirit. Spirit of Jesus, I pray that you'd open up our hearts to you. That you would help us to know Jesus better. That you would help us to hear Jesus more clearly. And that you would help us in our day-to-day lives of obedience. Lord, be with us through the rest of this message, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So my text today is going to be in uh, the Gospel of John, but I'm not going to get there for a little bit. So uh, just so you know, that's where I'm going. But we are not the first people to ask the question, what does God want me to do in life? What does God want for my life? What's his will for my life? Every culture throughout human history has wondered the same thing. The Jewish people of the Old Testament wondered the same thing, and the cultures that surrounded the Jewish people wondered the same thing as well. There's this really curious verse in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, that when you read it, you might think, what on earth are they talking about? So I'd like to unpack it a little bit for you because it demonstrates how people in the ancient world used to try to figure out God's will. And this comes from Ezekiel 21, 21. I believe I have a slide for it. Here it is. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, if you're keeping track, if you know the Bible stories, Nebuchadnezzar stands at the parting of the way, at the fork in the two roads. So you have a picture of this Babylonian ruler standing with two options. And if he goes this way, he's going to attack the Ammonites. And if he goes this way, he's going to attack God's people. And Ezekiel says he stands there at the fork in the roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, and he inspects the liver? (laughs) Uh, The first time I read that, I thought, okay, I'm going to need help understanding this, because we are millennia removed from this, right? We don't understand it, but thankfully, through archaeology, different scholars have, have kind of discerned what's going on here. So I'm going to share that with you. One of the ways that the king of Babylon would try to figure out God's will is he would shake the arrows. Now, I don't have any arrows in my house. All I had last night when I was looking around was a stir stick from Home Depot. So I drew an arrow on it that you probably can't see from that far away, but it's an arrow that says this way. So what they would do at the fork in two decisions was literally... 
pointing this way, that must be where God wants us to go. Right? That, that was actually a thing. There's a word for it. It's called bellomancy, if you're looking up the scholarship on this. It was actually a thing. They would shake out arrows and see where the bulk of them pointed and figure, you know what? Well, that must be where God wants me to go. They would consult the teraphim, which is a fancy uh, word for their gods, their different idols. And people suggest it was probably a set of stones We have archaeological record of this, a light-colored stone and a dark-colored stone. They'd kind of toss it and see what stone comes out, and that would be your yes-no answer. It's the ancient equivalent of flipping a coin. But then the third, this is actually called hepatoscopy. I had no idea that there was a fancy name for it. But they would actually, and this is kind of gross, so if you're squeamish, maybe just plug your ears for this part. They would sacrifice and then look at the liver of the person sacrificed. And we actually have models. I have a slide, uh, a picture on the next uh, slide. That's actually an ancient Babylonian model of a liver. And depending on where the spots are on the liver, they were able to discern, to read. It's kind of like reading tea leaves. You've heard of that? These were all the ways that people in the ancient world tried to figure out what their God wanted them to do. And they weren't the only culture. The ancient Greek people also wanted to figure out what their God wanted them to do. So they had this pithic oracle at Delphi. It was this, this person who would, uh, some people, some of the ancient literature says that the oracle or the prophetess was seated on top of this chasm in the earth from which interesting vapors from like a volcano would come up. She would be caught in a fit of ecstasy and give answers from the God. And we have some actual recorded questions that were asked by the ancient Greeks. The next slide has the first one. I like this one. And, and I'm not making this up. This has actually been passed down in the records. God. So... so addressing it to God. Geriatin asks Zeus, so that's the name of the God that he wanted to inquire of, concerning a wife, whether it is better for him to take one. That's it. That's the end of the prayer. Um, I am thankful that in my case that prayer was answered yes, but I didn't address it to Zeus. Um, Such a simple thing, right? But you wonder, uh, what does God want me to do? Well, I'll ask. And then the oracle, the Greek oracle, would respond on behalf of the God. Here's another one. I like this one, too. This Agis guy asks three gods, not just one, I guess to cover all the bases to make sure they got them all figured out. Asks Zeus, Nios, and Dion about the blankets and the pillows which he has lost. And again, I'm not making this up. This has come down. These are actual things that people inquired of their God to find out whether someone from outside may have stolen them. Did someone steal my pillows? I know what I'll do. I'll ask God. And it seems trivial when you hear these prayers like that, but you know what? I've heard prayers like this. I've probably uttered prayers like this. God, is it your will for me to marry this person? We know that that prayer was answered affirmatively in the case of Pastor David and Joanna, right? (laughs) Thankfully. Um, Is it your will for me to marry this person? Or how about this one? Has anyone prayed, Lord, can you please help me find my keys? Because I don't know where I put them. Okay, okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. 
we can, we're going to have prayer time at the end of this message, so um, just keep that in mind. Have you ever asked things like this before? I'm sure we all have. Here's the thing. The Old Testament Jewish people sometimes were influenced by these surrounding cultures. And they even lead to the same way. And here's the part where I'm going to maybe challenge the way you understood a Bible story. This next story is from Gideon. I have the text on the screen. And I, when I read Old Testament narratives, sometimes I like to read it in the message translation because it has a nice narrative flow. Gideon said to God, if this is right, if you're using me to save Israel as you've said, then look, I'm placing this fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if the dew in the morning is on the fleece only, but the floor is dry, then I know that you will use me to save Israel, just like you said. And that's what happened. When he got up early the next morning, he wrung out the fleece, and there was enough dew to fill a bowl of water. And then Gideon said, uh, don't be impatient with me, but let me see, just, just one more thing. I, I want to try another time with the fleece, because maybe it was a fluke. But this time, let the fleece stay dry while the dew drenches the ground. And God made it happen that very night. Only the fleece was dry, the ground was wet. And I've heard a number of sermons preaching this as a technique for how we can learn God's voice. It's been called putting out a fleece. But I want to challenge you on this text. And again, you don't have to agree with me. But I want to challenge you on this text. If you go back just before it in the Bible, we read that God told Gideon what to do and gave Gideon his spirit so he'd know what to do. So what should Gideon have done? He should have done it. What does he do? Yeah, I'm going to put out this fleece and see what happens. It's not actually a way of discerning God's will that I think is used as a model to pass down to us. Rather, it was a way of Gideon kind of postponing what he knew he was supposed to do in the first place. I think it was a way of trying to say, oh, I don't really want to do this. So, okay, this is what I'm going to do. If you make this fleece wet and the ground dry and God does it, and he's like, oh, no, I really got to do it. Wait, no, I got an idea. Don't be mad, but let's do it the other way around. And it takes this confirmation after confirmation before Gideon finally says, okay, God, this must be you. I've heard people talking about so-called laying out a fleece. I'll give you a couple examples that I've actually heard. These are real. I won't tell you who asked me. God, if this employer offers me a job, I will receive it as a sign that you want me to take the job. This was actually a situation I dealt with recently. The person applied for a job that was a long shot. One of those, you know what, I got nothing to lose, so I'm going to apply, but there's no chance they're going to pick me. I don't really have the qualifications and so on. So this person said to me, you know what, I'm such a long shot. This is my fleece. I'm going to throw it out there, and if they give me an interview, then I know it's a sign from God that, they, that he wants me to take this job. So I asked the person, well, what if the employer likes you, offers you the job, but God doesn't want you to take it? You've kind of forced God's hand, haven't you? You've kind of told God what you expect him to do. See where this gets a little dangerous, a little troublesome? Or this is another one I've heard. 
God, if you want me to be a foreign missionary to China, I'll need three people in three different situations to confirm it to me, and then I'll know you want me to go. And this person actually never felt called to China, didn't want to go, but some person told her that it might be an idea, and then a second person said randomly, you know what, you could be... And then all of a sudden she's like, oh Lord, I'm going to need three confirmations. And that was her fleece. That was, you know what, God, I'm going to put all these criteria in place, and if you fulfill them, then I'll know it's you speaking to me. I think you can see the trouble in doing things like this. There's a couple big problems with this type of divination-style prayer where you say, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw an arrow. I'm going to inspect liver. I'm going to flip a coin. I'm going to ask for confirmation. I'm going to do this. And if this, then I know that, God, you've spoken to me. There's a couple big problems with it. The first problem is this. It's so often self-centered, right? It's so often focused on our needs and desires, like the prayer for where my keys went. Uh, Lord, help. And there's nothing wrong with praying for God to help us, of course. But these, when we're making big decisions in life and we're putting these criteria up for God to fulfill for us, it's centering everything on our needs and our desires and expecting God to come through. But the more significant problem is this. It gives us a false sense of certainty that bypasses relationship and bypasses faith. Think about Gideon. God told him what to do and gave him his spirit. Faith would be, okay, Lord, I'll do it. Bypassing faith was, okay, I'm going to put out this fleece because I need certainty to know whether or not it's God speaking. We so desire certainty in our life, right? When we have big decisions to make, like, am I going to move to Hanover to the church there to be their pastor? When we have these big decisions in life to make, we want certainty. We want God to tell us. We want the arrow to point in a specific direction so we absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's called us there. But certainty bypasses relationship. And it bypasses faith. And here's what I want to suggest. That the New Testament, what we've experienced in the revelation of Jesus Christ, shows us a better way for knowing God's will for our life and beyond. Here's my text. John chapter 10, verses 2 to 5. This is a teaching of Jesus, and he says this. The the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He brought them out all on his own. He goes out ahead of them, and this is what I wanted you to catch. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is teaching in this portion that he is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of the sheep, and sheep will know, his sheep will know his voice. Jesus wasn't 
making this up when he said he was a shepherd. There's a long tradition. We know from the Jewish scriptures that Yahweh is the shepherd of his people, right? Many of you, I would imagine, have memorized Psalm 23, which begins, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Ancient cultures used this idea of shepherding as a metaphor for leadership. Um, okay, random side note, fun historical fact. Have you ever seen the Egyptian sarcophagi when they come, sarcophagus, when they come to, uh, when they go on tour at the Ram or something like that? You know, the, the big golden covers that held the Egyptian pharaohs. And you see their arms are crossed on them, and there's something in each of the pharaoh's hands. Do you know what those things are? One is a flail for whipping people, and the other is a shepherd's staff. Because even in the Egyptian culture, it was recognized that a good leader has to be a shepherd. And the Jewish people knew this, that God is their shepherd. And God even appointed under-shepherds, like the kings, who Ezekiel rages into, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, under-shepherds who would lead on behalf of God. Jesus is that ultimate shepherd. Jesus is the one who shepherds us, his people. And shepherds had a deep and intimate relationship with their sheep. A shepherd in the ancient Near East could have up to a couple hundred, maybe 300 sheep in their care. And it was not uncommon to know all of them by name. They would know them from birth. In the, they would let them roam in the daytime to crop the grass and so on to gain sustenance. But in the evening, nocturnal predators like hyenas would come out. So the shepherd would pen the sheep in for safety. And as the sheep were coming in, the shepherd would recognize each sheep that came in, even as dusk was falling, just by touch, by the shape, by their mannerisms. Shepherds grew intimately acquainted with their sheep, and it was the same the other way. The sheep would know the voice of their shepherd. I have a, I, I did a little bit of research on this for a course I'm teaching on leadership at the school, and I have a quote I wanted to share with you. Timothy Laniak actually went to, um, uh, went to the, uh, the Near East, just south of Israel, and he did research with some of the last remaining Bedouin farmers and shepherds that were wandering with their sheep. And he learned a tremendous amount about this shepherd relationship. And this is one of the things he says from experience, from being there. Responsible shepherds know every member of their flock in terms of their birth circumstances, history of health, eating habits, and other idiosyncrasies. It is not uncommon to name each goat and sheep and to call them by name. Goat and sheep, by the way, were herded together uh, in the ancient Near East. To call them by name. One of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised. This is what I wanted you to catch. Simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice. Or whistle. Only a special bond between animal and human can explain this responsiveness. So all it took was for the shepherd to call and the sheep would hear and know the shepherd's voice and know that the shepherd was bringing the sheep to a place where they could drink or to a place where they could eat or to the pen in the evening where they would be safe from predators. 
shepherd leaders looked after their sheep and the sheep knew their shepherds. And so Jesus picks up on this metaphor that everyone in the ancient world know, knew, but we, we kind of don't have as clear in our minds now. And says that he, Jesus, is the good shepherd. And his sheep, which is us, know his voice. They, I want you to imagine something silly. Imagine a sheep. The sun's starting to go down. It's getting a little dark. Here's the voice of the shepherd whistling and calling for that sheep to go into the pen. And the sheep thinks, yeah, I want to be sure what God's will is for my life, what that shepherd wants me to do. So I'm going to flip a coin and if it's heads, then I know the shepherd wants me to go into the pen. But if it's tails, then I'm going to go back to the pasture because I'm still a little bit peckish. Or, or uh, okay, sheep, I'm going to put out a fleece, get it? Because the sheep have wool on them. <laughs> if, if, my, if my coat is wet and the ground is dry, then I know you want me to go back into the pen. But if it's... It's ridiculous, right? Why? Because relationship is more important than technique. It's always more important to know someone than to rely on the technique. Take it to the realm of your own relationships. Someone you know, someone you love calls out to you and say, can you give me a hand for a second? And you think, hmm, maybe I'll throw an arrow and see which way it points. No, it's ridiculous. It's, it's obviously ridiculous, but we use that logic with God. And when we do that, what we do is we do an end run around relationship, around faith, and we rely on a technique that gives us a false sense of certainty, but maybe nowhere near the truth. We just celebrated Pentecost Sunday last week, right? We celebrated the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Good Shepherd himself coming on and infilling and being poured out upon the church. God gave Gideon the Spirit. We have received the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of the Good Shepherd living inside of us right now. The question is, have we developed that sort of relational intimacy that enables us to know and hear the voice of our shepherd? That's what I was doing, even though I didn't realize everything I was doing back when we were deciding whether or not to take the church in Hanover. The more Donna and I talked about it, thought about it, prayed about it, the more it just, we felt unsettled and we didn't have a reason. Because according to the fleece, if it was a good place or not, everything seemed good. But we didn't have this settledness. And then, as it was coming closer for us to make a decision, the church in Bracebridge opened up, and they needed a pastor. And immediately, we thought, oh, that's where you want us. And so I called up Tom Quinn, who was our, the director at the time, and said, listen, I think I, I, we think we need to go to Bracebridge. And he kind of chuckled and said, well, I'll, put your, I'll give them your resume, but you know, everyone and their dog wants to live in Bracebridge. And uh, <laughs> so I'm like, okay. We got an interview, Don and I went to Bracebridge, and I remember we got there early, we parked the car at the Shoppers Drug Mart, we walked down the main street just to get a feel for the town, and we had this sense that we know it's not certain, but we had such a sense of peace that 
if God didn't call us here, we didn't know what we were going to do. We went to the board meeting, met with them, same thing. It was a completely different experience. And those two experiences together taught me a little bit more about what it means to hear the voice of the Spirit of God calling me to do something. Leading me away from an area that he didn't want me in, even though it seemed good. Forcing me to wait with that uncertainty for a couple months, which was very painful and awkward, until the place came that God wanted to direct us to. And then it was like all the peace of the world flooded into our hearts. We had no certainty. We didn't shake arrows. But we developed a little bit more of that relationship with God that helped us to discern his voice. So what does that mean for us today? I want to end with three things. The first thing is that relationship is the most important part. When we're trying to hear God's voice, when we're trying to discern God's will, and by the way, uh, two Sundays from now, you have a very important task to do in discerning the will of God. When the, when the preacher comes and then waits outside in a room while you all vote and decide his fate or her fate, um, I've been in that position. Uh, you have a very important task to do in, dis- in discerning God's will for the future of this church. The board is already engaged in this very important task. But just know that it would be ridiculous to flip a coin and say, God, if it's heads and you want this person here, if it's tails, you don't. No. It's about developing that relationship where you can hear, you can feel, you can know the witness of the Spirit of God inside of you. And that starts now. It doesn't start when there's a crisis and you need an answer. It starts in developing that relationship day by day. I want to encourage you. Here's a very practical step you can take. Practice listening to God. Historically, when people spoke about prayer, it involved listening. But when we talk about prayer, we often talk about talking. I would encourage you to practice listening to God. One of the most helpful ways I've found, if I just sit in a chair, my mind will wander. But I find if my feet are moving, it helps my brain stay on track. I don't know, my brain's connected to my feet somehow. But uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Honestly, the best way I've ever practiced listening to God is to have gone for a walk without any technological distraction on me. And not a walk to go somewhere, or not a walk to exercise, not a walk with a purpose, but I've been on retreats where we've had an hour of free time and I've just gone for a saunter. We'll call it a saunter, not a walk. You know, just the kind of walk where you're just looking around and you're trying to still your heart and you just say, Lord, God, would you speak to me? And just be still, be silent inside and listen. You'll begin to hear the voice of God. But it takes practicing that relationship ahead of time. Too often we ignore God all throughout our life and then we have a big decision to make. So we're like, give me an arrow, I need to shake it. Um, It starts earlier so that when these decisions come up, we practice, we know what the voice of our shepherd sounds like. So the first thing I wanted to share with you is about relationship. The second thing is about community. And this is something that's really hard to grasp and it's difficult to convey in just a few minutes at the end of this sermon. But in our world, we often think individually. 
especially in the Western society, about ourself. We ask, Lord, what is your will for my personal individual life, right? Whereas when Jesus is talking about shepherding, he's not shepherding a sheep and 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 a sheep. He's shepherding a flock, right? It's a broader community. And so it's important to consider that broader community. Okay, not only do I sometimes wreck people's perception of Scripture, sometimes I wreck their perception of worship songs. So I just want to share with you really quickly one of my favorite worship songs that bothers me when it gets to the bridge. Do you know um, the song, Your Love Never Fails? It's, uh, Nothing can separate Even if I ran away your love never fails. Anyone heard that one? It's, and I'm, I'm thinking of the scripture. What can separate us from the love of God? Can this, can that? Paul says, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm like, yeah. And then the, the chorus is, you stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And it's all good stuff, right? They're all drawn from scripture, beautiful metaphors. I love this song. But ever since I started thinking about this community thing, the bridge has started to bug me. And I'm sorry, because now it might bug you, but I think it's that important. You make all things work together for my good. You, you make all things work together for those who love God and who are called according to <laughs> I'm still going to sing that song, by the way, because it's a snappy song. It's, it's soaking in Scripture, and there's nothing particularly wrong about the way that bridge is sung, but what it does is it opens our eyes to the way we think as a culture. We think individually, work together for my singular good. Whereas the scripture that was taken from is, we know, not I know, we know all things work together for good to those, plural, who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It's not about how can I be happier in life or how can I be more satisfied or how can I live my best life and be hashtag blessed. God is, I would dare say, not as concerned with your own personal happiness as he is with shepherding his entire creation to its God-ordained purpose. It's much bigger than who we are individually. And that also leads me to my third point about mission. It's not about my own personal, but it's about all things. There's the redemption, the restoration of all things who are called according to his purpose. God saved us not to give us happy and carefree lives, but to work through us, to enlist us in his redemptive plan to restore not just every human being, but all of creation. Roman talks about all of creation is groaning, right? Waiting for the sons and daughters of God to finally step up and take their place and be revealed for who they are. God has a bigger plan, and he's enlisting us in part of it. And so when we pray, Lord, what's your will for my life? And we're thinking, well, maybe he really does want me to get a nice new car. God might be thinking, well, how can I use you 
to bring everything in heaven and on earth in, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God has a bigger plan, and we are part of that. And that's what's truly fulfilling. The last scripture I'll share with you this morning is from Ephesians 1.9. We ask what God's will for our life. Well, Paul told the Ephesians what God's will was for their lives. He says, he has made known to us He used, that's a typo, I need to fix that. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things, things in heaven, things on the earth. God's plan is to restore this entire creation and to enlist us as agents in that change. And that's what God's will is for our life. So I encourage you to practice avoiding that certainty of arrow throwing. Is just a, it'll, it'll stick with you, hopefully. Coin flipping, putting restrictions on God, fleeces, I would even say. It would have been a lot easier with my Hanover decision to lay a fleece or throw an arrow, but I would have missed growing in my ability to hear the voice of my shepherd. Just before we close, I invite the, uh, the worship team to come on back up. Learning to hear Jesus' voice over our own desires lacks the certainty of divination, but in exchange for that false sense of certainty... You have this growing trust relationship with your good shepherd who is guiding all of history towards the restoration and the redemption of all things. And in the end, that's far more deeply satisfying. I'd like to pray. And we're going to close with a song. And as we sing, um, uh, you're welcome to come to the front. There's a prayer team here that would be uh, happy to pray with you if you'd like prayer for, uh, for anything. But uh, before that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for pouring out your Spirit upon us and giving us the ability to hear your voice, to actually know the voice of our Good Shepherd. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we enter this week, we will all develop a keener ear, a better practice of of hearing your voice through the noise of our distractions and the busyness of our life. Lord, help us to know you more. Help us to be more responsive to you. Help us, Lord, to know your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.